0: I'm Katherine Spearing, and this is Uncertain. Our guest today is Tiffany Bloom, author of a brand new book called Pray Tell, Why We Silence Women Who Tell the Truth and How Everyone Can Speak Up. It addresses power imbalances in both the corporate world and spiritual environments through an intersectional lens. It aims at promoting safe spaces for both women and men. I believe this book is extremely important seriously. It is so applicable to the work we're doing here at Uncertain, challenging the church to do better. Because whether we acknowledge it or not, churches are notorious for silencing victims. In this episode, we address why we're more prone to believe men in situations of abuse, purity culture, benevolent sexism, and a lot more. Buckle up. Here's my interview with Tiffany Bloom. Hey, 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 girl, we have now we're talking so much we have to talk about. I cannot <laughs> so wait.
1: Excited. I, I can't wait. Started. Let's get right into it.
0: So what do you do? I'll admit that I I finished your book last night oh, hey. and I have not had time to like, oh, we can. go and like look at your website or anything. And so tell me just like a little bit about you and what you do. I know you live in the Seattle area. So great starting yeah. point. <laughs> Tell
1: yeah. Me so why. I am, I am a writer an author and a speaker and a podcaster. I have a podcast called why though, with a friend and a fellow author, Ashley Abercrombie. And I've written uh, two, three books, two Bible studies really at the intersection of faith, women, and justice. And as I've done that, I think it's really reminded me of how much work there is to be done in building equitable spaces for women, especially in this last one, as you just read every page. And I'm a mom, I have a 10 year old and a six year old. My oldest is adopted from Uganda. I'm an adult adoptee and my youngest is straight out the chute. So we got a little United nations thing going on here. And I'm a Pacific Northwest girl. I was adopted just shy of my second birthday from India. And so I'm very, very in love with the PNW. Yeah, that's a little bit of who I am and how I spend my time and my days and I'm so passionate about women. And I actually have a, a women's, I don't like to call women's ministry because there's just so much, that's a loaded word, right? We'll call it a women's gathering and it's called SIP and we meet at, before COVID obviously, but we meet at a restaurant and we're fed beautiful food and wine paired by the chef. And it's a beautiful place to break bread and gather and read the scripture together. And it's started out with just 12 gals. And now we serve about 600 women a year.
0: Wow. And how often? Oh, it's five
1: yeah. weeks on a couple weeks off five weeks on. So it's a, it's a every Sunday, the, the restaurant's closed on Sunday. So that's how we can sneak in there and set up and do our thing.
0: What was the experience like watching, reading this book? Cause my, my experience or writing it, I guess. Is- I was like, I have
1: read <laughs> it, but I wrote it too. <laughs> yeah.
0: Cause I can't imagine writing it. Cause my experience reading it was read a section, punch a pillow, get up, <laughs> walk around the block, come back, read another section, repeat.
1: So my experience was, I found myself in an impossible situation, Catherine, speaking truth to power and losing everything I held dear in the process. And so as I grappled with why I wasn't believed and a man who abused his power at a woman's expense was believed and found I was disposable and he was indispensable, I really unearthed why we silence women and the societal, financial, professional, and spiritual ramifications of doing so, because there are so many layers to why we treat women the way we do and the imbalance of power in where we work and worship and play. And it's one that we can't escape. You know, we, ever since the Me Too Women in the 2017, but really since the dawn of time, we've seen women subjugated and silenced, slandered, reduced to nothing, told that they exist to serve men, told that their bodies exist for the pleasure of men, told that they're second. And, and how we have internalized that belief as women, but also how do we right this cultural wrong? Because it's affecting how we live, how we work, and really, research shows that it's the leading factor to derail a woman's career is any sort of abuse of power at a woman's expense. So wow. it's destroying her. It's destroying her professionally, financially, spiritually, and even more so
0: than like having kids or something. It's it's the leading factor is an abuse of power.
1: Yes. Wow. So as I discovered that I'm like, this is a big deal, (laughs) you know, this is a big deal. And it's interesting because language is everything in RBG, the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she often was very careful about language, not saying women's empowerment, but talking about gender equality, talking about equality between men and women and knowing that what they both deserve on paper must be in practice. And as women are scapegoats for the infractions and misconduct of men, we're seeing just how detrimental that is to society. I mean, research shows again, that if you were to include women in places of power, not just one single performative act of putting a woman in power, but truly across the board, the GDP increases, male CEOs won't make us hasty decisions, safer streets are designed, uh, better laws are passed serving the whole, not just women we all benefit when we address this issue. So we can get into how this happened and why it happens, but that's kind of the, the bulk of why I wrote the book, why I believe it matters, because I was the girl, Catherine, who played by all the rules. And so when I found myself disposed, it was devastating because I'm like, I did everything everyone told me to do. I did I did the right thing. I, I, I've, I've checked all the boxes, yet here I am with mud on my face and my credibility torn to shreds simply because I wanted to speak up on behalf of somebody else. Because the reality is, not all of us are going to have this happen to us. The majority of us are bystanders. And we ask ourselves, what's my role here? It didn't happen to me. It didn't I, I only heard about this, or you know, it's not it's not my circus, not my monkeys. And and the truth is, we all have an ethical responsibility to speak up anytime a man is abusing his power at a woman's expense.
0: And that was kind of like the the tailhead of the book is. Like the only way really to stop this is for everyone to speak up, not just the victim. Like everyone needs to be doing it. Everyone needs to be an ally. Everyone needs to be speaking up. And yeah, I've got, I had to sit with, again, I like, I, I finished it last night. So I have to, I have to sit with that Mm -hmm. (laughs) a little bit because of that, the bystander syndrome of, and, and then I'm speaking, like my work is with survivors of spiritual abuse and then addressing ways that the church needs to do better and needs to be challenged. And in a spiritual context, there are so many ways that we gaslight ourselves. And that's one of my questions for you is about some of those passages, scriptural passages that anyone of faith, even in whether they're in a spiritual context or not, are going to be thinking about, about, you know, Matthew 18 and what does forgiveness Mm -hmm. mean and all that kind of stuff. So I definitely want to get into that and talk about that. So you had mentioned in the book, you talked about the negative bias towards female victims. And you use an example of the way that Bill Clinton was treated versus the way that Monica Lewinsky was treated. And so I would love to just hear from you, like, where does this negative bias come from?
1: And why do we do this? Yeah. So culturally, we have allowed men to hold the power. They have held the reins. They have groomed us as individuals and corporately, to offer them sympathy. And so you think of someone like a Bill Clinton who very much abused his power. And even as a, as a young woman, Monica Lewinsky would have told you it was consensual, even though there was a clear imbalance of power, leader of the free world and an intern. you know That's not an equal footing for a relationship. It was not consensual. That was no, not consensual. and it took her, she even said, it took me years to understand that he abused his power. And so understanding how even the victim couldn't grapple with the fact that she was taken advantage of. We are so indoctrinated to believe that men are right and that they they wave their accolades. And that's really how they get away with it. They wave their accolades in our face. They're compassionate. They're kind. And we must remember anyone displaying narcissistic tendencies is a master manipulator. They're Absolutely. capable of providing you with a persona that is so acceptable and charming and believable, benevolent, kind, and generous, that it is almost impossible for us to believe that somebody we've had a good first impression with is in reality an abuser of power. It's, it's very hard to make that switch, which is what you see recently with the Robbie Zacharias, Carl Lentz stuff going on. We cannot seem to grapple with the person who was kind to us or that we had a, a, a faith experience because of their leadership or teaching or preaching. In reality, they're human and capable of harm. Also, it's, it's clear evidence that reveals the more men have access to power, specifically unchecked power, the more likely they are to believe that they're sexually attractive, desirable, and seek out sexual affairs. So this is across the board. You will see this in sacred and secular culture where men believe that they quite literally deserve to be pleasured, deserve to be um, rewarded for who they are and what they've done and how they've contributed to the world. So with those two, with that charming personality and that unchecked power is really a master for disaster. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And you have to remember, when we take that Bill and Monica situation, who got to spin the narrative? Who got to tell the story? And it was Bill. Exactly. She, this is, the internet had just taken off. She was the first one to be publicly shamed on the internet, on a global stage. And obviously many more followed in her footsteps, but she was the first. And so to go from this, you know, I don't even see this as consensual to the man controlling the narrative. You know, she talks about how his, his position was imbued with power. He had so much power to tell the story from his point of view and his ratings as you read were higher after that sex scandal than before now if that doesn't make you go bonkers i don't know what will knowing that we give men more empathy especially if they appear repentant whether it's real or not if there's any appearance of honest repentance and a commitment to accountability then we owe it to him right because again i think there's something in us we all crave goodness we all crave Eden. We all crave wholeness. And so when someone is posturing in such a fashion that we assume that that's taking place, of course, we're going to offer them forgiveness. Of course, we're going to offer them um, a second chance. But if they are weaponizing that experience to continue abusing their power and continually grooming society at large or individuals to side with them when something were to kick off, then we have a serious problem on our hands. And it's what we see again and again, especially in sacred culture.
0: Oh yeah, totally in sacred culture because we're kind of trained on the formula in a sacred culture. Mm, absolutely. And so you have, you have the right words already presented to you from Sunday school class. So mm-hmm. you kind of you know what to do. It's just fascinating to me though that we're just conditioned to be more empathetic to men and yeah. like that we're we're gonna, we're gonna be sway. And I guess I'm like, what do we do about that? Like,
1: But we also have to unearth why we do that in the first place. You know, you think of the Greco-Roman influence in the early church where the church was set to be like men and women are equal. Everyone has a place at the table, which was why it was so radical. It was so radical. Then you see that Greco-Roman influence infiltrating the church. And then we see the early church fathers shouting that a woman's body is a deformed man. A a woman represents everything evil in this world. A man represents everything pure in this world. When he lays with her, he's laying with evil. He's, He's defiling himself, if you will. So we're, we're created to be this untrustworthy entity in this story. And it, it really has passed through generation and generation and taking our, our, I think a lot plays into this as well, of just the dynamics of power, who has power, who has prestige, who has higher class, who has, who's bigger, who's physical, you know, the physical size. Yes, We trust men who are bigger, taller, hold themselves. If they're distinguished and well-spoken, we're in deep trouble. <laughs> you know, they're able to really talk their way out of anything. I think of Even in my situation, a a clever man was able to talk his way out of a situation and continue to harm those in his path until there was so much evidence that they, you know, those charged with keeping him accountable had to face the music. So first understanding, how do we deal with that? We first have to understand why do we automatically give men the benefit of the doubt, the empathy, if you will, instead of Mm -hmm. sympathy, why do we give that to him? So being able to know that culturally our religious education plays into that, our family of origin, if women weren't seen as equal in our home growing up or in the media representation that we ate up as a child, there's so many factors. So being able to step back from that and ask ourselves, what do I believe between men and women? Do I believe that their testimony and that their voice and their dignity and their place in the world is equal? Because if so, I need to recalculate why I'm giving so much trust to a man who's accused of abusing his power. And have I seen any of these tactics employed against me, charming me, grooming me to trust him doing favors for me, even the littlest to the biggest flattery, flattery. And also we have to consider our proximity to power, right? I think the majority of the book is asking all of us to consider your proximity to power and your willingness to Uh, trouble the system, if you will, get into some good trouble as John Lewis called us because so many of us just don't want to rock the boat. And we're like, I have nothing to lose because that's what it does. Silence asks nothing of you. And speaking up could very well ask everything of you.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially, and you pointed this out so well in the book about, especially if you are like the only woman or one of two, you know, and, or it's like in my situation where it's a, it's a church and it's a church that's actually giving women opportunities to lead and to speak and you don't want to blow it, you know, like, yes. like you have this opportunity and, 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 and I think that you said maybe in the book, maybe I'm making this up, but it's like women are granted positions because men allow them to. Yes, And that, that is like the way that we kind of operate. Like we're lucky to be here because this man let me be here. He's the gatekeeper. mm -hmm. And I love the way that you phrase it. We have allowed men to be in this place. Like, cause that is, that is the power thing. We do have Mm -hmm. power and we've allowed them to be in this position. So I like I like the way that you phrase that yeah. at the opening. So I guess you would say that then th- what you said about like early church fathers is kind of where this idea that or just these these ideas that you were talking about that when women get raped and like what she was wearing was blamed. Or when it's imbalance of power, well, she wanted it. Yeah. And like all of these these things that is that does that just come from like men just trying to get themselves off the hook? Like where does that come from.
1: Yeah. The exterior blame. We, again, both in sacred and secular cultural, we, we, we see this, we see this with a Harvey Weinstein and we see this with an Andy Savage. We see this with men in churches all the time. Like, but she wanted it, but she looked at me like that, but she led me on. You're like, you had a decision to make and you read the situation wrong. And now you're saying it's her fault. Because you made a choice, it, it 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 passes the buck. It's it's victim blaming at its finest, and it's interesting because both rape culture and purity culture they are the same side of the coin. They they both view women as something to be conquered or had or devoured or or taken apart for our own personal consumption, and in reality, we are again placing this exterior responsibility. But also, you are responsible for your own personhood. Like you you are responsible for your thoughts and actions and we can't pass the buck on that. And what's worse, Catherine, is that we're allowing people to pass the buck because let's say somebody's like, well, I didn't do it. I didn't know that she didn't want that. Like your inability to read a soft no of like, Hey, it's getting late. I got to go or, Hey, I don't feel comfortable with that. That's, that's no in woman speak. We're so taught to be nice at the risk of, of offending men. And I think that there's room here to educate women on what does a firm no, a kind firm no look like. But there's also room for men to be like, how do I read cues so I'm not yes. a dum-dum, right? So there's a both-and going on here. <laughs>
0: <Absolutely>. <laughs> but we really
1: have, we've allowed men to have a posture of innocence when it is not to be awarded. And and, and we've just given them a free pass. And like, oh, that your intention and your actions, although they might have been quote-unquote different, they're not. And so now we need you to own that and not continually provide evidence why a victim should be blamed.
0: Yeah, you brought up purity culture and you mentioned something in the book about these, these little things that are done, such as opening the door or picking up the tab and, and, and then purity culture falls into this category of like done in the name of protection, oh, but then how that It can actually be very damaging. And I would love for you to talk more about that.
1: Yeah. Benevolent sexism is what you're referring to here. And it is sexism is like, no, we are different. And of course, we're just differences between men and women. I'm not discounting that at all. No way, shape or form. I think men are unique beings and women are unique beings. But this benevolent sexism is says, oh no, we're different. And I'm going to employ some seniority and superiority over you for your benefit. So there's a, there's this built-in reward system. I'm, I'm paying for this, or I'm doing this. And it's again It's, it can come from a kind heart, but benevolent sexism still says I'm the one in charge. I'm going to open the door and I'm going to, again, don't hear me listeners. That this is a bad thing, but kindness let's, let's be chivalrous in the name of kindness, not this benevolent sexism that still places men above women, because that can easily be a slippery slope. I think of in this generation, you know, in the swipe, right generation of dating of, men feel like I bought your dinner. I just met you off Tinder at 4 PM. Here we are at 7 PM having dinner. You owe me sex now. And so you see how that can easily be a slippery slope in culture where it's like, Oh no, I did this for you. I mm. have, I have been kind to you. No, you owe me this. And it's even just that language of a, a, a man is owed something by a woman because he was benevolently sexist to her. Like this is no, you were kind and you offered to pay for dinner. So there's, there, there has to be an understanding of the difference there. And I, I know that passage could easily be uh, misinterpreted in the book, but it still remains that this is how it starts. These small seeds of kindness, quote unquote kindness, we think it's kind. And in reality, we're being groomed for someone else's agenda and we're being gaslit and manipulated. And we don't even realize it because we placed trust or care to this person that really didn't deserve it in the first place.
0: This may, this may or may not go in the episode, but <laughs> speak hey, to girl. the men, mm-hmm. speak to the men who were groomed by culture to do that, to, yeah. to pick up the tab, to open the door. And then when a woman rejects it, they're hurt.
1: Right. Speak to those men. Okay. Pull up a chair, <laughs> gentlemen. No, pull up a chair. No, truly. I, I just first want to say I'm a believer in a men's role in allyship in this, because without men partnership, partnering with women, this can't happen. This goodness culture that we're creating cannot take place without them. In in my own life, the majority of the mentors in my life have been men who have not taken advantage of their position or power over me and who've amplified and mentored and promoted me in ways that I'm so grateful for. And they've shaped who I am today. So I would just say to this issue, if you have been trained, like, oh, no, all this chivalry should pay off. This is not a transactional culture. This is a transformational culture. And so living in a world of transactions where if I do X, Y and Z, if I buy her dinner, if I take her out to a movie, if I get her flowers on her birthday, she owes me emotional support. She owes me relational support. She owes me physical touch. She owes me, you know, even, even just physical demands of like, Oh no, she needs to do the dishes or she needs to do this, or she needs to go pick up this. That's not, that's not equality. That's not love. And and it when I think of equality with, through a biblical lens, this is love. We're talking about love and care for the other and compassion for one another. So I think that We must remember that the the goal of equality isn't that like, well, I did this. Now she needs to do this. That's not equal. That's transactional. Transformational goodness culture requires love without return and loving because it's who you were created and destined to be. And to live in the fullness of God in your own life requires to love without return. Of course, we want reciprocal relationships and there's room to talk that out. But if there's an expectation without conversation, we're in trouble.
0: That's awesome. Thank you. Stockholm syndrome. Oh. The
1: Stockholm syndrome
0: in the organizations. And I read that and I was like, highlight, 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 <laughs> highlight. Because I worked for a church that I left a year ago, and it was a very toxic, very abusive bullying, narcissism. There was not just one yeah. bully, there were multiple. And it it had gone on for years before I got there. But then there were still staff and elders who had been there for years. And and I was always just like, if you saw this pattern happen over and over and over and over, mm. why did you stay? And then you, and then I read that s- corporate Stockholm syndrome thing, and and then I mean, with the church, you, there's more to lose than just, the, just a job. You're losing your community, you're losing your place of worship, you're losing so your hard. job, you're losing potentially your family. Yeah. So there's so that is a huge factor. But then that that Stockholm syndrome, I would love for mm. you to talk
1: more about. Absolutely. Corporate Stockholm syndrome, which I just want to echo with you, Catherine, when I began to research that pattern of toxic abuse in the workplace, I had to stop myself in my tracks moment to realize and recognize the trauma that I had lived through. And in my head, in my heart, knowing something's not right here. And I was like, no, it's just me. Oh no, this is just the way it happens here. Oh, this is just the way things work. This is life versus being like no, this is, this is a mess. Like this is painful and hurtful. But every time I thought, oh, this is a mess. I don't know. There would be some act or gesture of kindness. That would be just that little carrot dangled that kept us being like, no, it's not as bad. So of course, you know, the Stockholm syndrome story of a, a, a bank being robbed, I believe it was in the seventies in Stockholm, of course. And the captives became endeared to the captors with just the tiny bit of kindness that was shown. I believe it was just like a drink of water over time or caring for them in one capacity, giving them a little bit of a a break outside the safe, all these tiny, tiny, tiny little things that they're still the captors. These people are, are being oppressed, but those tiny acts of kindness were inflated to represent so much more. And they were confused with feelings of connection And belief and respect and dignity, and when reality they weren't. But when that's all you have is scraps from the table, that's what becomes your appetite. That's what becomes you, what you hunger for. And so, if you're working in any sort of system, work or worship, where there is so much toxicity, but you've been steeped in it so long that you can't even smell that you stink, and then that little, little, you know, delight is handed to you a turkish delight will you see us lewis example here that little bit of turkish delight is given to you like it was to edmund and you're like no this is good this is good this person cares for me this person believes in me this is a this is a good place No, i can see myself here i can see i can help contribute to this place and space and in reality we're making excuses for someone who doesn't deserve it and over time especially if you add years in my situation it was almost a decade i i I was asked so often like well why were you there didn't you see these things And I'm like, yes, but when you tie in a paycheck and little bits of goodness and promotion and opportunity, and you have to remember in Corpus Stockholm syndrome and in any toxic culture, the people who are abusing their power know what you value. I just want to say that again, the people abusing their power, they know what you value. Is it your place? Is it your name? Is it your paycheck? Is it your future opportunities, your career, they know exactly what you value. And that is the carrot they dangle. And that is the little bit of goodness they offer you uh, to keep you feeling like this is okay. No, because you're so steeped in it. It's brainwashing to be quite quite frank with you.
0: How does someone know that that's, that's happening?
1: honestly, it's often when someone who loves them points it out, it's really exterior an exterior exchange with somebody who cares for them. For me, it was a dear friend who saw me and she's like, you're not even the same person. She's Mm -hmm. like, you're a shell of a shell of who you used to be. You feel like everything can be toxic around you. As long as you keep, as as long as you work your little place and space and your team and your angle, making sure that's healthy. But, but if you look around you, this is still an unhealthy space and that's going to seep in. And so it was really somebody from the outside being like, hey, this is not okay. And I think that just speaks to the need for reciprocal relationships with people we trust, which is what this book is about, of the lack of trustworthy relationships and imbalance of power. How do we combat that? By having balanced, equitable, reciprocal, mutual relationships where we can speak truth and accountability to those around us and they can speak truth to us.
0: I appreciated you pointing out how when a leader does share a story or is the one to reveal that there was toxicity in this organization or this person was found out to be an abuser and then they end up getting mud on their face because they were the ones to bring it forward. And you said that was a small price to pay for what was stolen from the abused. And I just think about the, the empathy that went towards the abusive pastor at the church that I went through that he was deposed for spiritual abuse, which is a miracle because it never happens. And, and the fact that there was enough, enough witnesses, enough victims, enough people, enough evidence that he could be removed. But so many people felt so much sympathy for him and how like, Oh, he had to like give up his job that he loves. Oh, he had to move. His, career, oh, right. his family lost their, you know, their friends because they had to move, yada, yada, yada. And I'm looking around being like 30, 40 other people wow. lost their jobs, had to move, had to leave the church, you know, and it was due to no fault of their own. At least he's like yes. reaping he the consequences. He done did it. Yeah. yeah. So I so appreciated
1: that you- You said that, but I want to add to that, you know, everyone wants the truth, but nobody wants to be the truth teller because you're putting yourself before the firing squad. You are, you, you might be guaranteeing your demise (laughs) and it is necessary to tell the truth. And it, we need to create cultures where that's an acceptable uh, practice, but this empathy that we offer, not the whistleblowers, not the victims, not their families but the accused is misplaced. But again, that goes back to who gets to tell the story, who gets to shape the narrative and and make room to invite that empathy. It's usually the abuser of power. And that's, and I, I am sad for their loss, but at the same time, like you said, they have to take responsibility for their actions even if they're forced to do so. Whereas all the collateral damage, all the people who've been hurt in the process, they did not ask for this. They right. did not seek this out. They did not ask for their jobs to be lost or lives to be destroyed at the hands of a man abusing his power. And there, there ha- we have to switch our, yeah, our compassionate mentality. action. Yeah, it really, it's it's dangerous. It's damaging. It's why people are leaving the church. They're watching the church's witness just dim over time because of how we continually praise patriarchal men.
0: What about situations where because this definitely happened and you address this too, about organizations who are trying to to say, oh, this so so and so they, you know, had, you know, a moral failing. And so therefore we're firing them or whatever. And then they don't give details. And in the name of like protecting the victim, supposedly, but who it ends up really protecting is the abuser or the offender. What what then should someone do in that situation in order to protect you know because it's not someone's empowers job to say this happened to mary and this right. is what he did to mary so what are what are some guidelines for revealing the magnitude of what happened without telling someone else's story
1: oh what a great question I, I have quite i camp on this issue quite a bit because again just as we talked about without details of the perpetrator's actions, not who the victim was, not where she lives, not anything about her, give as little detail as possible. We still have to tell the truth because if we don't, I can guarantee you that man will spin it in his favor. You see this time and time again where there are vague definitions and press releases, you will see a man get to control it and minimize it and twist it to fit his life and his future plans if he's if this man's going to plant a church if this man's going to go start a business whatever the case may be go get hired another fortune 500 company it's it just it happens again and again and again and i also want to uh use the example of robbie zacharias recently for them to put out a public report that anyone can read in fact i believe his his daughter was one of the ones having to lead a lot of that investigation and, and help hire and bring transparency to that i can't imagine how painful so going back to how painful it is for those family members those family members off, often are, are victims as well. They're victims of this person's narcissistic tendencies in their own family. And so in the case of Robbie, they, they've listed in detail all of the things he's done, but no woman is mentioned. No specific woman is no mentioned. Name is mentioned. Like mention, no name is
0: mentioned. They like mention, no name is mentioned. They mention the deed, but they don't mention the name. And that right. is how a way to do it.
1: And, and one of the, the reasons or excuses, shall I say that faith communities offer up is that we do not want to, you know, sully the name of Jesus or the gospel or the kingdom. And in reality, they're dimming the witness because the church is going to stand, our God's unshakable. And so for us to purge the, the darkness is part of our job and our responsibility not to cover it up. It's not mm-hmm. our full-time job to to twist and to narrative to make us look good.
0: Would you say in the case of a person in a in a power position, such as the head pastor of a church or Ravi Zacharias, like there's not a there's not a category for like sweeping that under the rug. Like that has to be public, right? Because of the public persona of that person. I, I, if it's
1: a public figure, absolutely. And here's another reason why. When you are able to publicly say, Hey, this is what happened. You just watch all the other victims come out from the shadows there. There's power in, in handling it well, because other victims are watching how you're going to handle it. And they're watching how you're going to treat this man and line his pockets with cash and send him off to another place to do well and do good and lead some unsuspecting group to their own demise. So being able to transparently share this is what happened and, and watch them honor victims is necessary. And provide redress and recompense for their, their abuse. And as we ensure that victims are protected and invited to healing above protecting a predator and abuser of power, then we're on the right track. You mentioned
0: inviting the victims to the table for that conversation. What would that look like?
1: Yeah. Great question. I think that if that victim wants to be part of a process of deciding terms and conditions of consequences, I think of the case of Chanel Miller, Brock Turner, who abused her from the whole Stanford situation that we read about years ago in her book, she detailed how she was invited to the table and she was called by the defense and, and asked like, Hey, what are you thinking? Or, and they didn't honor it, but she was invited. And when they didn't hold the line, then the legal community really got behind her and said, this judge doesn't get to be on the bench if he's going to award such minimal consequences to a man who clearly took advantage of a situation and is trying to get out of it. So that's an example of how it should have gone and maybe didn't go well. And then there was even greater consequences for those who didn't handle it appropriately. But then I also look at the case that I mentioned toward the end of the book with the United Methodist Church and women lobbied and called for greater consequences for the man who abused his power and took advantage of the woman around him, including his ex-wife where it really needed to happen. And so I think women sometimes are like, wait, I just, I don't want my life to be destroyed. Right. And there's a way to protect her identity and not destroy her life. And we have to recognize that we can do that because in reality, and history shows us that coming forward, a woman has a lot more to lose than a man. I mean, proven by our Bill Clinton conversation. So finding ways for her to speak to the retribution process while still protecting her identity can be done. It can be done.
0: That's really helpful.
1: The misconception about male
0: sexuality that like they need sex or they are like, they can't control themselves. You, you've addressed, you addressed it a little bit, but how is that problematic?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the answers in the question on that one, it really is so problematic because if we culturally in, in any culture, if we believe that men deserve this and are not able to control their desires and that they are just craving intimacy, whether it's consensual or not all of the time, then we are setting up women to be consumed and to be taken advantage of. And again, we give that free pass to men and scripture is clear that we are all responsible for our actions and for how we treat one another. And so believing that men need, and of course the, the person and people perpetuating this belief are men. So that doesn't help. And so they're setting that standard of like, well, this is what I need. And of course, I think in healthy relationship between a a married couple, intimacy is a healthy, beautiful, wonderful, sacred thing, but not at the expense of a a woman feeling broken or abused, or there's an act of theft happening, taken from her body or her time.
0: Or giving Um, and giving and giving and giving and giving. Yeah. Yeah. It goes back
1: to that transactional nature versus transformational and, and truly a partnership.
0: And that's where like the purity culture thing comes in, which is, you know, men, men, uh, men have these sexual urges and they can't control them, which is why you need to like cover your body. And blah, yes, blah, blah. we
1: are responsible for their downfall. Don't wear a white T-shirt. Don't wear spaghetti strips. <laughs> yeah.
0: And then at the same time, women are also portrayed as the temptresses and the mm-hmm. predators. And, the, you know, at the same time, so it's like, you just can't win.
1: You can't win. You can't win. And again, it goes back to that. It goes back to a misunderstanding of the Genesis story. And it goes back to the early church fathers. You think of the purity movement of the late eighties, early nineties, we've continually reinforced this belief that women are the reason for men's downfall and men can't control themselves. So it's a both and, and they're both wrong. And unless we correct and we are inviting both our sons and daughters to have a healthy view of themselves, a healthy view of, of the opposite sex, then we can't begin to build partnership or connection. And then another thing, if women are the reason for men's downfall, you take the Billy Graham rule where men shouldn't be alone with women, men, you know, women shouldn't be alone with men. You can weaponize that and women lose out on places and, and positions of leadership because they have a, a woman and they have again Absolutely and again and again. Have. And in reality, I'm like, you really can't control yourself because I'm in the room like, Come on, man! Come mm-hmm. on! You can go fight in a war and hold down a job, but you can't control yourself. Like we gotta, we gotta. And
0: if fight. you can't, you should not be a pastor. Or come a- on now! If yeah, can't, like if you can if you really room- can't.
1: <laughs> you should not be doing this job. Yeah, maybe you should think of another (laughs) career. This might not be for you. Exactly.
0: I'm so glad that you brought up the, reminded me of like one of my most important questions, which was you addressed Matthew 18, going to someone, the principal passage in scripture about Mm -hmm. addressing grievances with someone in private forgiveness and reconciliation and how those things are misapplied and misappropriated in faith communities, but then think for any christian who's working in in the work world also feels that pressure of like having to handle it this right way so break down those yeah interestingly
1: before i'm gonna i'm gonna dive into that but we have put such a high premium on whistleblowers or truth tellers silence breakers whatever we're gonna call them mishandling sensitive matters they didn't handle it right therefore that's a bigger issue than the misconduct that's taken place. And that is preposterous. Like that's just ridiculous. That's bogus. Absolutely. So Matthew 18 invites horizontal relationships between men, women in, in the faith to go to one another. If there's been an issue and seek reconciliation, that is again, horizontal relationships that speaks nothing to vertical leadership where there is some hierarchy at play. Now it gets blurry when this, a faith leader is a friend, but it still invites us. If someone is a faith leader, we are to go with evidence and two or three witnesses and go to elders or who was ever charged with accountability. It'd be inappropriate to approach anyone superior who's who's the perpetuator of this abuse. This only gives that person an opportunity to gaslight, threaten, manipulate, slander. And it happens again and again. And people are smart. They're not gonna walk into a lion's den unprepared, right? But what, what we're seeing is, silence breakers, the victims are told, Oh, you didn't handle this appropriately. You, you should have gone to this person, Matthew 18 style. And this was said to me with men, I respected charged with keeping someone in a superior leadership role accountable. And I was the one shamed for coming forward in a private, private meeting. You know, it's just as it was ridiculous. And the, the shame of what I had done and, and how I had handled it became a bigger issue, just as I previously mentioned. And in reality, we must have a better understanding of this passage to go with two or three witnesses. And we've often tallied that to two or three victims. We need to see that this person has destroyed other people before we'll even take this seriously. And we hold that man's accolades and words over multiple people, witnesses. we need to remember, we need victims over these, over witnesses account. You know, if, if a young girl came forward about her youth pastor, her and her parents, that's three people, man. Her and her mom, that's two. Like. Going with that person who you've lent your strength to and a witness to your own misconduct and your own personal harm, they didn't have to be in the room. They've seen the traumatic experience that you've had and you go and, and the way we have decided, no, we need victims. We need to know that he has hurt multiple people is a misunderstanding of this passage. And we've continually given such a free pass to elders. We've given a free pass to the enablers because they believe that they're holding scripture in a high regard. And and I do, and they do, they do believe they're holding, I'm not, I'm not discounting that, but, but we must broaden our understanding.
0: And be aware of the power dynamic. I see that missed so often in church communities because suddenly, because when you're, you know, insubordinate or you're, you know, not doing your job, then, then there's a power dynamic. But when it's a conflict situation, Oh, equals and there's no longer a power dynamic, but no, that power dynamic totally is still there. And especially in an abuse situation, you should yeah. not be required to Matthew 18. It and,
1: and, and just a traumatic experience. Like if there's been some serious trauma, as I said, this is what derails a woman's career. I am living proof of that. I was a breadwinner from home. Yes, Amen. Catherine, you get it. And it, it's, my whole life was radically altered because of another man's abuse of power. And so we, we must see the power dynamics of race and class and platform and opportunity and prestige. And again, physical size at play. And, and then even worse by those charged with, again, because we know abuse doesn't happen in a vacuum of any kind, institutional abuse, spiritual abuse, all of that. Even worse, those charged with handling the matter and the misconduct will feed lines that assume An abuser of power can escape dissent or accusation or accountability, you know, passages that are taken out of context, like don't touch the Lord's anointed. Mm -hmm. Uh, First Samuel has this private conversation between David and Abishai, his armor bearer and Abishai is like, I can take King Saul out right here. I can take him out with one, one one stick to the chest. And Saul is saying, do not cause bodily harm to a, a sitting king. Do not cause physical bodily harm to the sitting king, not uh, I can defy any order because I'm anointed. Right. And besides the Queen of England in the New Testament, we don't see people who are anointed in that same fashion. We're all enabled and empowered as image bearers of Jesus and image bearers of God. So, this idea that we have given this free pass in, in reality, David was critical of Saul's political positions, actions, military choices and strategies. He was critical of that. He's publicly critical of those. And even David had his own reckoning when, when Nathan, the prophet, approached him and said, this is what you've done. And everyone knows the fact that it got to Nathan. Think of how many people would have had to know. And that would have been public knowledge of what he had done. I mean, messengers went to collect Bathsheba. Like it was known what he had done. And you know, King David never had what he had previous to that. He was never fully restored in the way that we'd like to to rewrite that narrative. His own son tried to take his throne. His his kingdom was never with the same. He was constantly at war. His own daughter would be sexually assaulted by his son. I mean, <laughs> this man faced consequences, just more than we could even dream and imagine we'd love to skip over that we love to whitewash the story to think that you know what he he made a mistake and mm-hmm. he is sorry and he got over it and in reality you know that even the ancient of days ain't gonna let bygones be bygones so we've got to see that there's consequences here and to say don't touch the lord's anointed uh, uh, has this implicit belief that men are free from accountability and that they're untouchable and that creates this authoritarian you know leadership triangle that is not anywhere near what the kingdom of god is intended to look like
0: and even just like i'm assessing the denomination that i was in and how they have all of these policies in place for someone to bring a complaint forward but they benefit the elders they benefit the pastor like they just you know they they keep they basically they're just to like fend off you know just any naysayers or whatever, yes. but, but they make it very difficult for, for victims to come forward.
1: And if you do, you're treated as a traitor of the gospel that, that, that yes. the man of God is under attack and you're, you have this Jezebel spirit or you're a gossiper or a slander and you're trying to take out the work of God. And you're like, Hey, Hey, <laughs> they're the ones destroying the good work. Not, not me, you know? Yeah. Multiple
0: times, multiple times. Are there any other final thoughts to you want to? Yeah, wanna
1: I want to speak to the bystander. I want to speak to this person here. like, you know what? This hasn't happened to me, but I see impropriety or I notice something's not quite right. When I see Doug talking to Rosie by the water cooler or in the church lobby, know that you can step in before there's so much to lose. Or you're reading about it in Christianity today or CNN, Know that you can step in and just change the conversation and be like, Hey, did you want to go grab a coffee or Hey, I needed something with the copier. Do you want to come with me? Those, those little, those little step-ins, the bystander intervention, as it's aptly called, can really prevent a lot of trauma before something's blown up. We could be easily course correcting as a culture in ways that prevent a lot of harm. And I think also as a woman comes forward to you or you notice something, lament that this is happening. We can't ignore that this is happening. If this Robbie Zacharias thing has shown us anything is that this is happening and we must act now. We cannot bury our heads in the sand. This will continue to happen unchallenged, uncontested, and half the world will, will just crumble under this weight and this oppression if we do not speak up as everyday bystanders, as everyday ordinary people of faith. So to lament it's happening, lament, and, and to truly listen, actively listen to the, if a woman does come forward, because honestly, she's going to tell her friend before she ever goes and tell somebody else. A good friend may come to you. That's this, in my situation. That's what happened. And I'm, I was grossly underprepared because I didn't know see it coming. And I, I asked stupid questions and made her feel shame. And in reality, I should have been an active listener, considering my body language, considering my facial expressions, withholding judgment letting her simply speak. And we have to remember, you know, statistics show it's very low rate of lying on these issues. So let's also keep that in mind. And then I think, so after we lament, after we listen, we can truly lean in and learn how does this happen? We need to be educated as much as we're educating ourselves as we should about uh, a white supremacy in this day and age. Amen. I hope everybody's learning about that. We need to continue and broaden our education of like, okay, what are injustices happening in every space in, in, in sphere of society that I can be part of the answer, not the problem. And then I think also we need to remember love and justice are not divorced. Calling the police is not against the move of God. Jesus is, is a is a good good shepherd, and he longs for justice, and he longs for love. And again, those aren't at odds. So when we're pursuing redress for a woman who's been harmed, or pursuing consequences for a perpetrator, we're not unforgiving or spiteful. We're seeking justice.
0: Yes, thank you so much for writing your book for doing that really hard work. If it was difficult to read, I know it was a lot of work to write and I am sad for the experience that led to the reason for writing this book. But I do believe it's a very, very important book. I learned like I'm immersed in this world, but I, but it's rare that I like have these aha moments. Like, Oh, I, I like, just discovered something I never learned, but I had them like all over your book. I was like, mm. it was fantastic. And so I'm really, really grateful for that. Thank you for writing it. I really appreciate it. So thank you.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks so much for joining us today. Uncertain is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden, a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider making a donation by visiting tearsofeden.org slash support. All donations are tax deductible. Intro music featured in this episode is from the band Green Ashes. Before you go, please take a moment to like, subscribe, or leave a review. And don't forget to share this podcast show with everyone you know. I'm Katherine Spearing and I'll see you next time.